Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. Welcome to episode 74 of the Headspace and Timing podcast, a show brought to you by the Change Your POV podcast network. September is National Suicide Prevention Month, and because of that, I wanted to provide a short series on suicide awareness in action. Last week, we talked with Dr. Stacy Friedenthal about developing awareness around suicide, and today we'll be hearing from another internationally recognized suicide expert, Dr. Sally Spencer-Thomas. Here's a quick look at what you'll hear in this episode, then we'll jump into the conversation. Really look at, on a cultural level, um, how we can thoughtfully and intentionally put messages into the world in the many ways that we communicate that inspire a positive frame around this issue, that inspire, um, you know, the fact that people are living through this and actually being transformed and growing through it all the time. That for some people um, coming to this point of absolute despair is the turning point for them where they leave abusive relationships or get sober or have a spiritual epiphany or whatever it is they need to change in their life to make it better. Um, and so let's paint that picture louder than the picture of, of, of hopelessness. Welcome to the Change Your POV Podcast Network. You're listening to Headspace and Timing, a show dedicated to breaking down the stereotypes about veteran mental health. My name's Dwayne France, and I'm a combat veteran of both Iraq and Afghanistan. After I retired from the Army, I took on a new mission as a clinical mental health counselor for my fellow service members. If you served in any branch of the military, you're familiar with the M2 machine gun, the 50 cal. It's one of the most effective weapons in the military's arsenal. If the weapon's headspace and timing wasn't set right, however, it was just a huge useless chunk of metal. Veterans can be rendered inoperable if their headspace and timing isn't set correctly either. That's my goal with this show, to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health and reduce the stigma against seeking support. Each week, we'll talk with mental health professionals, veterans, and those who support veterans, service members, and their families. We're going to have real and honest conversations about a topic that most just don't like to talk about, veteran mental health. Let's jump into this week's conversation. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Headspace and Timing podcast. Once again, and as always, we really appreciate you taking the time to uh, listen to and learn about veteran mental health. As you know, uh, after listening to last week, that uh, we're looking at September as a Suicide Prevention and Awareness Month, and, and I very specifically wanted to focus on these next four episodes, uh, last week's, this week's, and then the next two, uh, on the topic of, of suicide. As everyone knows, especially in the veteran community, that, that veteran suicide is a critical topic um, that everyone is talking about, whether we're talking 22 a day, 20 a day, active duty veterans. Uh, and so I really wanted to dive deep into that this month. Um, I've had conversations about suicide on the podcast before. 
but I wanted to bring in a couple of experts. And, and much like last week, uh, the uh, the guest that I have on today uh, is not specifically looking at veteran suicide, although that is a part of her, her wheelhouse and, and her experience. Uh, but before we get too far into that, I'd like to welcome Dr. Sally Spencer-Thomas to the show. Sally, welcome. Well, hello, and thank you so much for highlighting this really important issue. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think that uh, no matter how much we highlight it, um, it, it can always be highlighted more uh, until we don't have to highlight it at all uh, because exactly. we, we figured it out. Uh, so before we really get into the conversation, I'd like to, to have you uh, tell the audience a little bit about yourself, uh, what you're doing now, maybe your background and how you came at uh, to be uh, a recognized expert in suicide and suicide prevention. Well, thank you. So um, I'm a psychologist by training, and a long, long time ago, I actually cut my teeth on um, working with veterans. I did my internship, my doctoral internship at the Boston VA Medical Center, and kind of got a full year of, of really intense training and experience and working with uh, those populations and just fell in love with it. Um, later, uh, much later, I transitioned out of being uh, a counselor and was working at a university uh, in leadership development, both teaching and co-curricular activities with undergraduates, and I loved it. Um, but around that time, my my younger brother, my older, my only sibling, died of suicide after a very difficult battle with bipolar condition. So I found myself um, in you know an acute grief. Uh, realizing that, you know, this was potentially my calling in life and that um, I was going to focus the rest of, of my career, of my energy um, into trying to figure out how to prevent what happened to Carson from happening to other people. And, um, you know, very quickly, you know, here I am 16 years in the mental health area. If you count my undergraduate degree, degree years, um, no one ever told me that my brother was kind of the prototypical person to die of suicide, a, a man in the middle years. That just wasn't uh, a demographic that we were focused on as being at risk. But sure enough, when you started to look at the data, not only in our country, but across the world, uh, generally speaking, that's the demographic that shows up most in the suicide death data. So that meant that um, there was a pretty important gap there to fill. Uh, that all of our messaging of if you're depressed, seek help, that we were sending out through our different mental health initiatives were missing this demographic, and they were falling through the cracks. They were trying to wipe a lot of them, we call them double jeopardy guys, uh, men who have a number of risk factors who are least likely to seek help on their own. They were just trying to white knuckle it through, and it was often proving to be catastrophic. Um, so I'll pause there just to see if uh, there's anything that you wanted clarity on before I share like, what the next chapter was. No, I, and I think that's uh, that demonstrates something that is uh, probably pretty common uh, to to many of us um, is that there's a reason, there's an impetus uh, that that we come into this um, into the field in general, and, and maybe even suicide in particular. Uh, I've mentioned it a couple times on the show, and I'm, I'm very transparent about it that uh, uh, my first suicide intervention was with a family member, a Vietnam veteran, um, and and that was well before I became a mental health counselor, as well I was still on active duty. Um, and so similar to you, um, you know, that family member was uh, was someone in their middle years. We'd known that they'd been coping with this for a very long time. Um, and, and that is a very critical 
um, you know, place that uh, I think right now, especially with veterans, we're looking at the highest number of veteran suicides are at, at the age 65, um, uh, between 65 and 75. Um, and, and there's a lot of different reasons for that, but it's good to hear that, uh, well, not good to hear, of course, but it's, it's beneficial to hear that there is a reason, a meaning behind why you do what you do. Right, right. Well, and it goes beyond that. So I'm also married to a Gulf War era Marine. And, um, you know, he had, he was right out of service when we first met. Uh, but our, our, where this has come to play is uh, more recently um, during a, a transition in employment. Um, it's been kind of a challenging time for us. And so I've also experienced firsthand uh, some of the trials and tribulations sometimes of, of working with the VA, um, some of the incredible benefits of an, an incredibly high level of care, but also some of the challenges in working through the bureaucracy. So that's also uh, fanning the flames of my passion in working in this area. And then I would say the third thing that, um, that has uh, guided me to gain passion around this is uh, initiative that we started up in partnership with uh, the Colorado Department of Mental Health and a full service advertising agency called Cactus. When mm -hmm. we looked at the, the data, yeah, when we looked at the data in Colorado and we saw, oh my goodness, you know, it's men in the middle years that are um, spiking numbers and rates in our state. Uh, let's do something innovative to reach them. And during that process of figuring out what it was, um, we did, you know, 18 months of research and development and we stood up this program called Man Therapy. And it wasn't long after that we started getting knocks on our door from various um, groups representing military and veterans communities. Um, man therapy caught the eye of a lot of people because it was a very innovative approach that used humor and uh, kind of digital interactive media to catch those guys that are white knuckling it and falling through the cracks and help engage them in self-screening and linking them to um, resources that we vetted that were man friendly. So when we got uh, some funding from uh, one of our large funders here in Colorado to create a military and veterans component to man therapy, we went back to our communities and said, what does this look like? Uh, how do we do this? And they gave us some really important feedback about how to tailor this campaign um, so it would be more relatable and, uh, and connect better to various military and veterans communities. Um, so we did all kinds of research, uh, focus groups and in-depth interviews and surveys and so forth. And then we launched that uh, on, on, on Veterans Day in 2015. So that's been a, another really important part of uh, this journey that I've taken to try to figure out what could work. No, and I I, uh, I absolutely recognize the benefit of uh, of the Man Therapy website. I actually use it with some of my clients. Uh, oh, great! That's great um, I, to hear. <laughs> I, uh, I I try not to be Doctor Rich Mahogany, um, <laughs> but sometimes it might slip in there a little bit. Uh, but uh, but he's the best uh, false role model one could have, I guess. Yeah. No, but it's I mean, a it... no. Go ahead. I was just going to say, it's just a great liaison, right? You can say, hey, I found this thing. Go kick the tires. Go check it out. Tell me what you think. And sure enough, they'll find themselves, you know, going in there and looking at the resources and watching the videos. And we can tell, like, people are in there a really long time. They're checking stuff out in the privacy of their own phone or in their own home. Uh, they're doing the self-screening, you know, 20-point head inspection to see how bad is it? Should I be worried about my depression, anger, substance use, or anxiety? Um, and then they're digging into the resources a little bit to see what might be a good fit. So I really like it because it's that it's part of that 
link in the chain of survival in between I'm doing nothing and I'm telling nobody uh, in between that and, uh, you know, taking that first step into a mental health professional's office. Sometimes there's a, a few more steps that need to be taken before people feel ready. No, I, I absolutely agree. And I'll make sure that the uh, the link to man therapy uh, is uh, is in the show notes. Um, I, I honestly, I, I'm not, I'm surprised this is the first time I've actually mentioned it on the show here, but it's, uh, it's great. I mean, it's funny, but also you said it's also, um, it's, it's clinically informed, um, and it's, it's getting past the BS, what people really almost, you know, think a typical therapy would be. Uh, and that's not what it actually is either. Uh, but it is a way for people to sort of consume and get prepared for that because they're, and this is what I've seen with veterans specifically the distance between I'm not ready to go to therapy and when I'm actually in the, you know, the office talking to somebody, that's a very wide continuum. Right. And, and, and that is a way to bridge that gap. And that's what I've tried to do with my blog and, and podcast very specifically. Um, but, uh, but that is a great campaign. Um, so what actually, I just want to make one more comment about man therapy, which sure. is obviously there are women, military and veterans, obviously. Um, uh, but this was primarily a men's campaign, and then communities came to us and said, can you address the men within our special community? So that's how we ended up there. Um, we have tested it out with, with uh, we also have a first responder campaign. And again, clearly there's women, firefighters, women, police officers and EMS and so forth. Um, and for the most part, the women in these circles um, get that it's for men, but they also find, most of them find a lot of value in in the approach anyway. They're, they're not offended, they get it. Um, but we also realize that, you know, perhaps women-specific campaigns in these areas might also be of even additional benefit. Sure. I mean, and this is this is part of uh, building the awareness, right? I mean, not just in, in the Man Therapy website and these campaigns, uh, Given Hour has a campaign to change direction. Um, they're not specifically about suicide awareness, although that is a, a large part of it. Um, but, but one of the reasons why I reached out to you was, uh, the blog post that you had written, I'll make sure that this is also in the show notes, is talking about how we need to move beyond awareness and into action and what we actually need to do. Um, as we were talking before, uh, before we started recording, uh, I, I have a, a veteran who said it's been like this for 45, 50 years that the, the, the veteran suicide rate has been, you know, around 20 something, um, you know, in the seventies and it's the same way now. So, um, not to put you on the spot, but what do we do? What's the solution? Right. right. Well, I always say like awareness is necessary. Like you don't, if you don't know there's a problem you're not going to do anything, right? So and awareness is a necessary step, but we can't stop there. And I always use the example of smoking, right? How long, how many decades did we know that smoking was bad for us and that people did it anyway? Um, it, had, it had to take some certain type of policy changes and, and even ec- economic changes uh, for smoking rates to start to change. Um, so same thing here. I mean, just take... Uh, you know, this year, June, for example, we had tremendous amounts of bad news coming out. Uh, we lost two high profile celebrities to suicide. And then also the CDC came out with a pretty devastating report that showed almost all states have had a significant increase in their suicide rates in, in just the last little bit here. So uh, it was a lot. It, you know, it was pretty much on on major network television, on headlines on, across all our major media for weeks throughout June. So there was hardly a person that didn't realize that that this was a problem during that period in time. Uh, but I always equate it to like when you pass a really gnarly car crash, 
you know, you're all moved when you're passing it and, oh, wow, I hope the people are okay. And then you say to yourself, somebody should probably come and help them. I hope somebody's here to rescue them. Isn't it horrible? And then you keep driving. And then as soon as the accident is in the rearview mirror and it's going into the distance, it's out of your awareness again. Um, so I think that's often what happens when we have uh, kind of these pushes for suicide awareness. It's almost always some kind of catastrophic loss issue or really, uh, really uh, bad data or data that makes us feel very hopeless. And we just start what I call pounding the drum of death data. And I get why we do this. And I'm guilty of it, too. We want to create a sense of urgency, like, look, people are dying. We've got to do something about this. But then we don't give people a roadmap of what to do, how to step into it. And so that's really what my blog post was about. It's not it's not good enough just to pound the drum of death data. In fact, I think at this point, it actually might be detrimental because if that's the only message we put out there, it kind of just reinforces the sense of hopelessness, like, oh, people are going to do what we're going to do. There's nothing we can do about it. You know, isn't it terrible? Isn't it sad? Um, instead... Uh, the messages that we're trying to get out now is that, uh, first of all, everybody can do something to save a life. Everybody has has the agency to do something that will make a difference in their community, in themselves, and in their relationship with others. Um, and so it's kind of trying to figure out what is the best fit, where do, where do people want to have that influence, and how do they step into it. So on a personal level... Uh, one of the things that we all can do to help ourselves, because no one is immune from this, um, you don't really know at what point in your life uh, either your brain's going to take a left-hand turn on you, which it does, or you're going to have like these incredible life stressors, you know, divorce, financial hardship, um, a significant loss, um, you know, a, a catastrophic health issue, uh, any kind of trauma. Like these things can descend on us at any point in time and can really wreak havoc on, on our, on our well Um, and so it's not a, sometimes it's not a matter of if this is going to happen to us, it's a matter of when. So one of the things we can do on our, on our own to help us live through these experiences is really focus on what we can do to build resilience now. And I know resilience is a big fluffy word, uh, but there's actually very specific strategies that we can do that just like other muscles, we build up the mental muscle. So when the hard stuff hits, uh, we're prepared. We have a plan. We have a lot of coping strategies. We have a network of people that we feel safe disclosing to. I always say, who are your 10, three o'clock in the morning friends? Who are you going to call at three o'clock in the morning when, when it's all going to heck in a handbasket? Like, who are those people? Put them on a list. And so when you are really struggling, you can reach out to them one by one. Um, who are your professional people that you can call upon and who are your crisis people? And having that plan in place, regardless of who you are or how healthy you feel now, um, can really help us when we're in the, in the depths of despair. Um, similarly, we can do that with loved ones, right? So if we're worried about someone or if we can anticipate that they're going to be hitting a hard time, we can circle the wagons around them and say, listen, let's put a plan together with you to, to see how we're going to get through this. Anybody can do that with someone. It doesn't have to be a mental health professional. Anybody can help create that that plan for coping, that, that resilience plan to get them through. So that's one thing, kind of on the individual level. Another thing is that we can all get training. All right. So there are evidence-based trainings that teach us how to identify emerging warning signs, how to identify what uh, I just did this training this morning, um, what, what Living Works Safe Talk calls mm -hmm. invitation 
invitations, right? Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times when people are experiencing what we call suicide intensity, uh, thoughts and feelings about suicide, sometimes they're not very clear with us that they're having those issues. They, they, they communicate to us, but they communicate to us in indirect ways. And I always say it's the kind of thing that, you know, makes the hair on the back of your neck go up or your spidey senses go off. You just sense that something isn't quite right, but you can't quite put your finger on it. Um, you know that uh, they're trying to tell you something, but you're unsure of what it is. So these trainings take those invitations and give you some skills on how you can engage people in compassionate and empathic conversations that let them feel safe and open up a little more to tell you a little bit more where they're at. And then how can you then be that person that links them to appropriate levels of care? Um, I've been doing this a while and I can tell you not everybody needs, you know, you know, M1s. Not everybody needs to, most people don't need to be locked up. In fact, for most people, that's detrimental. It's, it's hard to go through that experience. It can be very frightening. Um, what most people need is some other level of intervention, either um, peer support or talking to a professional who has the skills to help decrease that suicide intensity. Um, that usually can help people get through that experience and get to the other side. So how do we train everyday people? Um, the bartenders, the hairdressers, the, the, the people in transportation, your coworkers, you know, the people who are most likely to notice a change in your behavior or change in your mood, or the, the ones who are most likely to be aware of a change in your life circumstance. And then how do we empower them to say, you know what, just like CPR, if you're noticing something, have the confidence and competence to step in and say, I got you, and I'm going to connect you to life-saving care. So that's the second level. I'll, I'll keep going, but I'll pause for a second to see what, what your thoughts are about that. No, I, I absolutely agree uh, with both of those. And even going back to uh, your analogy of uh, the, the extreme car wreck, uh, people will drive by, they'll be concerned, but then they say, well, there's professionals that take care of that. I'm exactly. not qualified to engage in that particular thing. No matter how many times we go through this cycle, as you were talking about, obviously with, uh, uh, with uh, Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade, uh, but I recall having the same conversation uh, with a lot of people when uh, Chris Cornell and Chester Bennington, um, yep. you know, and then again with Robin Williams and so on, so on, so on, you know, that, that, that every time we get this, when, when someone, uh, and, and like you said, I'm guilty of it too. Um, uh, back in June, um, I wrote an op-ed for our local paper, um, saying, okay, you know who, you know, Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade, but do you know the name of the veterans? Right. And, and, and really, again, it's the same call to action. Um, but then this other thing that you were talking about as far as, uh, you know, uh, building resilience, um, again, it's something, it's a buzzword. <laughs> I laughed whenever you said the, the fluffy word, the military is all about resilience, the Marine Corps and the army, and the air force are talking about building resilience, but this is something that we in the clinical community, like Mike and Baum stress inoculation training, we've, mm-hmm, we've known exactly. that for years and years and mm-hmm. years. Um, and, and that's what the military does in many ways is to, in, is to instill stress, to be able to provide resilience in battlefield situations. And the same thing can be done with uh, with with building resilience against these suicidal thoughts and actions. Uh, and, and I really appreciate that you brought out um, uh, what uh, Living Works does. I was before I uh, retired off active duty, I was a uh, applied suicide intervention skills training instructor. Um, it is by nice. far the, the best in exactly what you're talking about 
is uh, it's those gatekeepers uh, because it's not likely that the first person to come across someone who's suicidal is a chaplain or a mental health professional. It's going to be a police officer or a probation officer or, uh, you know, like you said, your coworkers. Um, and so it goes beyond just there's somebody else that can deal with that. And it's that I can deal with this. I, I have the confidence in my training to be able to step up and ask somebody that I care about and, and I care about everyone around me. Are you thinking of suicide? Are you thinking of killing yourself? I mean, and, and, and getting that training and getting comfortable with that, um, that's, I, I agree, that's moving beyond the awareness and actually doing some, taking some action. Right. And so there's a lot of great models out of there. We've been talking about Living Works, both Safe Talk and Assist is the one that you just mentioned. That's a little bit more in depth, a little bit longer. There's also QPR, stands for Question, Persuade, Refer. That can be done as short as an hour and a half. You can bring it into your school, your workplace, your faith community, wherever. Um, and then there's also another program that uh, I like to talk about. It's called Working Minds. It's based out of uh, um, Colorado's Johnson Depression Center, but it's uh, it can have national reach. And that's really to uh, bring workplaces on board as part of the public health approach to suicide prevention, that workplaces can also make suicide prevention a health and safety priority. And so that's kind of my next level of what we can do, how we can take action, is we can look at the systems. We can look at our organizations and our systems within our communities and what, what are their action steps, all right? So if it's not you know, mental health professionals take a really important role in all of this and giving people hope and the tools to cope and how they can get treated for things like trauma and depression. Um, but there's other systems that can also play a role in this. Um, my specialty is really in workplace suicide prevention. And there's certain industries, uh, mostly because who's showing up in those industries that have really high rates of suicide. So I spent a lot of my time uh, right now in construction uh, and also working in first responder communities with our firefighters and law enforcement. Again, a lot of those communities are employing veterans, so these issues completely overlap. And also kind of the warrior mindset and skill set uh, thrive in those communities, so it's a really mm -hmm. good fit. Um, and uh, But they're, they're worried. You know, they're concerned about their workforce because they look at their data and they, and they look at some of the, the health metrics that they're seeing, and they're noticing, like, some of our folks are, are really struggling. So what what can we do? And so I'm so impressed and inspired by some of the more progressive and forward-leaning organizations that say our people are our number one asset. Uh, please help us make this um, a health and safety priority. And how do we, as we say, bake it in to other places where health and safety are showing up? So one little example of what this looks like is uh, in the construction industry, safety is often the paramount value. Right. Everybody uh, is always thinking about how do we keep our workforce safe? There's all kinds of oversight and compliance issues and training and all kinds of stuff. So I said, can you can you show me an example of what kind of a culturally um, relevant uh, experience around safety might look like that might dovetail with suicide prevention? And they said, oh, yeah, for sure. There's tons of them. How about toolbox talks? And I went toolbox what? And they said, oh, we have so much to teach you, Sally. And I said, great, I'm here. <laughs> um, so Toolbox Talks turns out is an international ritual. Um, construction organizations all over the, the globe do this thing where, you know, for 15, 20 minutes before the start of the workday, everybody's getting out there and they're stretching and flexing and they're going over safety related to a ladder or a piece of equipment. And this is just something they do every day to bring those safety things to top of mind. Well, we wrote a couple of toolbox talks around suicide prevention. 
you know, here's what to look for. Here's what the resources are about. And, you know, 15, 20 minutes, everybody's getting a dose. So that's an example of how we start to bake it in um, and start to uh, create a culture that gives people permission. Like, this is, this is a health and safety issue here. Uh, we're acknowledging that. And we are doing everything we can in our power to prevent this kind of tragedy here. So you'll see a lot more uh, conversation about this. You'll see a lot more um, connection to resources and some skill building as it relates to our health and safety culture. So we can do this in workplaces. Um, another action step that I, I try to get people to um uh, think about in a, in a workplace or school or a faith community is um, for leaders to step out front. So it's one thing to put a, an article in a newsletter, right? It's one thing to put a, a poster up on a wall. It's a different thing when, when the top people of a system come forward and they say, you know what? This matters to me. This matters to me as your leader. This matters to me as a person. And um, we need to, to do what we can to create a culture of care here so that no one suffers in isolation and despair. That type of messaging from the right person when it's authentic um, does more to reduce stigma, does more to, to create a, 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 a caring culture than, than just about everything, especially if that, if that leader, if that person who's got that respected credibility can, can share um, a little bit of a Me Too message. Um, they don't have to go into depth. Sometimes it's just a little bit of, you know, I got to a point in my life was where I was overwhelmed and I reached out for support and now I'm better because of it. That level of message can matter greatly. Um, another thing that uh, systems can do is that they can do screening. All right. So already a lot of, especially workplace systems have, have uh, tuned into the fact that um, a healthy employee is a productive employee, is a loyal employee, uh, you know, and not one that's going to be very costly for them in terms of absenteeism and health claims and all this kind of stuff. So many employers have realized this and have invested heavily in wellness. But for the most part, that means uh, weight management, quit smoking, uh, exercise, you know, counter steps and, and that kind of more physical health piece of it. Um, but the more we get into it, the more we realize we can't tear apart physical and, and emotional well-being. They're absolutely intertwined. So again, the forward-leaning employers are saying, what do we do to promote emotional wellness? And part of that can look like screening, just like we screen for blood pressure and cholesterol and body max index, those kinds of metrics. We can also screen for depression, substance use, anxiety, and so on, um, just to give people a little bit of an insight. You know, how do I measure up to my peers? Am I, should I be worried? And that sometimes that screening can be the catalyst for people to take that next step. And then the final thing that we look for, it's not the final, but the last thing I'll mention here, I could go on all day. Um, the last thing I'll mention here is that, um, you know, within, within systems, um, we're often really, really relying on our mental health services to be ready. And they're not always ready. Um, mm -hmm. I, and I, I, this is my tribe and I love my tribe, but we are, most of us are woefully underprepared and downright terrified of people coming to us that are experiencing suicide intensity. And so we don't behave well when we're under those circumstances um, because we're afraid. And because if we got any training at all in graduate school, it was almost always don't get sued, don't get sued, don't get sued. You're going to lose your license. You know, here's how to CYA. Here's how to document so you don't get sued. Um, it was mostly that. And so we didn't really, uh, or just assess, assess risk. Well, it turns out we are horrible 
at predicting risk. Just flip a coin. That's about how good we are. Um, there was very little on what do you actually do to help somebody through it, to help people make meaning out of it, to understand what the function of it was um, so that can, people can um, start to figure out how to get through their despair in other ways. So we have to make sure uh, in our systems that our mental health providers are regularly trained on state-of-the-art suicide management and recovery, not just risk assessment, but what we actually do to help people heal. Um, we need to do that regularly. We need to step away from our hubris around this and feel like, oh, yeah, we're, we're the experts. We know it all. We don't. Um, our science around this is evolving all the time. So we need to re-educate ourselves and bring it up to top of mind so that when, when those people that we've trained to hand their, their folks that they're so worried about onto us, we can say, I've got this bring them. This is the best work that I get to do. Because if we don't feel confident and competent, we end up hot potatoing people. I know, oh, I can't deal with this. It's over. You know, it's a suicide crisis. I got to bounce them to the next person. And then they bounce them to the next person. And then maybe they do a mandated hospital stay for a couple of days and they get bounced back into the community. And, you know, all of that bouncing around does more to create a sense of demoralization than anything. You know, the helpers can't even help me kind of thing. So my call to, to those of us, uh, you know, those folks in the tribe who are really trying to help people uh, get through and find their way back to a passion for living is go dig into things like CAMS, Collaborative uh, and Assessment of Managing Suicidality, or, um, or Sean Shea's Practical Art of Suicide Assessment, or even go back and get, get trained uh, on the new iterations of uh, dialectical behavior therapy, like really spend the time and investment on learning the, the clinical tools that you can use to help others. So, and, and, and that's uh, really great. A, a lot of things there uh, specifically, and I'm, I'm hearing a theme of um, not, not going by the accident and, and, and having it be a one-time thing, but having it a, a common everyday uh, routine discussion. It's bringing it out of the darkness into the light. Uh, the toolbox talks and and uh, and having it as part of the the, the leadership in an organization step out um, and and it's essentially normalizing it. It's not that you're crazy. It's just like any other uh, health risk. Um, as you were talking about risk factors, and I've been uh, I've got an episode coming up with uh, Sarah Kinsel from USC uh, where they're talking about the Hemingway effect for veterans is what what uh, what they're looking at calling it uh, right now is is that that aging veteran veteran um, who, again, is 65 or older and, and has has nothing, you know, has retired and, and their friends are starting to move away or pass away. Um, and, and just like Hemingway, if you looked at Hemingway, everything was there. It, all the, the all the risk factors were there. Mm-hmm. Uh, substance abuse, uh, family history of suicide, depression, trauma, everything was there looking at it in retrospect. And how do we do that um, for veterans uh, uh, beforehand? And so you're talking about uh, prevention there. And yeah, then I really, I, no, go right. ahead. I was just going to say, um, we know that, you know, suicidal thoughts or the, even the more uh, broader thought of, I just can't go on, or I'd rather just wish I could go to sleep and not wake up. Those kinds of thoughts are, are fairly common when people are going through really distressing times. And so I always say, like, if you know somebody's going through a hard time, you know, divorce, illness, loss, et cetera, um, it's okay to assume it's there. 
It's okay to assume it's there and, and enter into that conversation. You do not need to have all your ducks in a row. You do, you do not need to have all the information and be 100% sure because uh, we're never 100% sure. The only way that we get to have some sense of clarity is when we engage in com- conversations around it. So, um, so th- that's a, it's a bold thing to do. It's a courageous thing to do, but it's also the thing that we know that can help um, break through that isolation and let people know that people notice and that, that they're loved um, and that then, and, and maybe connect them to the things that can get them back to life. And, um, and I think, good. and I think that really has to do with another level of awareness, right? I mean, this is, um, we can be aware, yes, the number of suicides and the CD, CDC reports and, and we can know that something's there, but that takes another level of awareness to say, no, no, this is so common that, that, uh, you know, one in 20 um, likely have had a, a, a thought about, and not even that, and, and uh, Stacy and I talked about the continue of suicide last week. Um, it's not either all or nothing. It's that general vague thoughts of, uh, man, this really sucks. What would it be like if I wasn't here? Those right. are extremely common. And so that's even another level of awareness to say that thought that you're trying to hide in the back of your mind, the person too doors down likely has had the same thought. And what would it be like if everyone was able to say, that's me too, that's me too, and then take that action and recognize that it is more of a normal thing. Not that it's a good thing, and, and but it's, but it's, but it is, it's normal. Yeah, it's, it's a reaction that's understandable given, you know, overwhelming circumstances. I, I like to phrase it as um, it's a, it's a red flag. It is a, it's a, it's a sign that something's not right. Um, and so I, I, normal for me is like breathing or heart rate, uh, you know, things that go on sure. every day and we don't need to even pay attention to them. If you're having a suicidal thought, that's a, that's a sign that we need to lean into. That's right. a, that's a flag that something's not right and we need to pay attention to it. Um, I want to go back to the, the 22 a day, uh, experience that we had a couple of summers ago, or at least it was a couple of summers ago uh, mm-hmm. here in Colorado. I think it started earlier than that in the military communities. But, um, you know, here we had this moment in time where this effort of creating urgency went viral and it went global. I mean, it, they were supposedly our data, you know, 20 or 22 a day. Um, but, you know, I had colleagues in Australia and the UK and everybody was participating um, and in my uh, in my little world of, of suicidology and suicide prevention, there was a lot of controversy about this. There was like, oh, my gosh, here we go again, pounding the drum of death data. Uh, we could you know, run the risk of creating self-fulfilling prophecy and blah, 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 blah. And I was like, you know what? We complain all the time. Nobody's showing up for our conversation around suicide prevention. No one cares. No one cares. Well, guess what? The world showed up for this in mm-hmm. a way that was creating a tremendous amount of urgency. Um, and we're going to wag our finger at them and say, hey, you're doing it wrong. Um, so instead of that, there was a few of us. I can't say we were large enough or powerful enough to make a huge difference. But what we said was like, you know, instead of waving our finger at people and telling them, you know, you're talking about this wrong and it's bad and bad you. Um, let's get into this conversation alongside and see what we can do to shift it to a more helpful narrative. So I don't know, there were a few of us, not that many, but you know, we did what we could. Um, that got challenged and we said, okay, you know, instead of 22 a day for 22 days, we're going to do 30 a day for 30 days to acknowledge the 30 military and, and veterans who are actively rescued each day by the, by the Veterans Crisis Line. And the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. So there the message was, look at all the people who got help. 
you know, a lot of people got help. And that's, so that's my next level. So I've talked about what we can do individually and what we can do in our relationships. I talked a little bit about what we can do in systems and my, my not my last area of what we can do, what actions we can step takes, uh, which action steps we can take is to really look at on a cultural level, um, how we can thoughtfully and intentionally put messages into the world in the many ways that we communicate that inspire a positive frame around this issue, that inspire, um, you know, the fact that people are living through this and actually being transformed and growing through it all the time. That for some people, um, coming to this point of absolute despair is the turning point for them mm-hmm. where they leave abusive relationships or get sober or have a spiritual epiphany or whatever it is they need to change in their life to make it better. Um, and so let's paint that picture uh, louder than the picture of 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 hopelessness, of of, you know, the deaths that we can't get our hands wrapped around. Let's let's talk about um, you know, how many people have lived through it? Uh, how many family members have helped loved ones, have been there for them, have, have, have been the friend, that three o'clock in the morning friend, have been that courageous person that reached out and helped connect other people to care. Um, let's, let's elevate the voices of the providers who are doing what they need to do to make their skills as, as, as absolutely honed as possible so that they're, when the people walk in their office, they got, I got you and I'm ready for you. And I've been so excited to help you. Um, that's a much better narrative that gives people confidence that we can get through it. And we can do this in all this. So this type of podcast is an example. We can do this in our local media. We can do this with our legislators. Uh, we can do this with, you know, what I call influencing the influencers, our faith leaders, our business leaders, our social media leaders, the people who are connected to so many other people. They can be the ones that help shape these conversations from despair, hopelessness and death to treatment, support, compassion, empathy, and transformation. Now, I, I think that's really great. It, it puts me in mind, I, I wrote, and this was a couple years ago now, I, I wrote a blog post talking about how we lost another veteran yesterday. Uh, and I don't think that I've, I've really gone into, um, many listeners might have read this, but uh, I, I had heard of another veteran um, who had, had, we had, uh, lost to suicide. Um, it was uh, actually, I think it was a high ranking veteran. It was a Sergeant major who had had many deployments. Um, and, and also on that same day, uh, through my clinic, uh, my clinical director and I had, uh, had helped the veteran, um, and, and essentially saved a veteran. So it was this, this dichotomy of, yeah, we lost a veteran yesterday mm-hmm. and a veteran's life was saved yesterday and this is mm-hmm. how the veteran's life was saved and you didn't need to be a mental health professional like me or my clinical director um you just need to do like you were talking about before um with the uh with the the uh, living works is you just need to listen you need to listen to their story you need to listen to to what they're saying and so there's uh, there definitely is an ability in and in my ways i i truly do believe that this is probably um, uh, the greatest gift that, and again, in my world that one veteran can give to another is to be the one that they bring this to, um, to be the one that to say, Hey, and, and there's, and I'll tell you my, my soldiers, my platoon, there's times where they call me up. I don't even know what's going on and find out six months later, they'd say, Hey, by the way, you know, when I called you that time, I was pretty much on the edge. And, mm. and something you said. And so this is this is something that I, I really like the idea of not defining it by the shadow, but defining it by the shape, the, yes, the positive. Excellent. Love it. Yes. And you bring up 
you know, what I think are uh, areas that have been under-researched and under-resourced uh, that I think are huge, huge potential um, benefits to our work, which is number one, peer support. Uh, we need to do a much better job of promoting peer support, um, researching peer support, infusing peer support in our workplaces, in our schools, in our communities, um, you know, especially as I work in, you know, predominantly male-dominated cultures. For me, that is the, that's the magic sauce right there because, um, the, again, as you said, the continuum from, hmm, maybe I should be worried to me stepping in a professional's office, that can be a long, long road. Uh, and it's peers that are often the liaisons to that, or sometimes they make it uh, not necessary because of the support that they have. Um, and so I'm really uh, very excited to see the formation of, of formal peer support programs within, you know, our firefighter communities and law enforcement and construction um, and within our mental health communities. Um, there's a new movement now with uh, suicide attempt survivor peer support groups for forever. The mental health community said, oh, no, no, you can't put those people together. You know, those people will trigger each other and blah, blah, blah. Meanwhile, the suicide attempt survivors were like, uh, no, actually, that's the thing that's been helping me most is to have other peers who have gone through that that really, you know, intense time and they're doing well, they give me a lot of hope and, and I feel like I can be safe with them. Um, so that's starting to emerge. Um, I just, uh, and it's, you know, from a cost effectiveness standpoint, if you're the ones, you know, counting the beans around cost, peer support is incredibly cost effective. Um, most people are volunteering in their roles to help because they are also helped by being helpers. Um, and it's something that we can have a far greater reach on than, than only mental health professionals. So that's one, um, uh, you know, I think especially in, in veterans community, there's, you know, possibly nothing more powerful than a really solid peer support program that that trains people and supervises people and gives them the tools. Um, another one that I'm really hopeful about, and again, I hope it gets more resources and research and that we learn more about how it's worked. But uh, I hear more and more all the time that um, many forms of animal-assisted therapy uh, for veterans in particular are so incredibly helpful. Um, again, there's a lot of reasons why I think, you know, it helps a lot of people, but why I think it specifically can be helpful for veterans. And, and part of that is this, uh, this idea of reciprocity that for some, for some folks, if you are, if you've been trained, if you've been conditioned since birth to be the strong one, to be the one that helps other people, to be the decisive one, um, you know, this is a, this is a big jump for you to take, to, to, put yourself in a, in a place of vulnerability and say, uh, I'm in over my head, I need help. With an animal, there is reciprocity. You help the animal, the animal helps you. And that, that bond, that connection uh, makes it far less daunting to get assistance in that way. So I'm a huge fan. I've, I've uh, you know, worked with a, a number of veterans who tell me that that is, that is the thing that keeps them here for now. That is their, their dog, usually it's a dog, uh, you know, is, is the reason that they stay, um, and that, you know, they're, they're very powerfully connected to that animal. Uh, I was, just, I was just, one more, one more comment. Cause I was just thinking I'm, I'm doing a men's anthology right now with some other folks, Sarah Gear and Frank King, and we've been collecting stories of men who, uh, came through really difficult times and, uh, what got them to the other side and really helping them create a, a powerful narrative, create a story about their life that, um, 
is redemptive and transformative and uh, kind of takes us on a hero's journey with them. And it's like been mm-hmm. such a rewarding, rewarding experience. Um, but I have to tell you that I, while I believe faith and spirituality and faith communities are a huge part of our lives, I was surprised about the number of men who came forward and said, you know what, that was the thing. That mm-hmm. was the thing that helped me through was, you know, either connecting to my my faith community or having a deeper appreciation for um, my spirituality. And that's what keeps me grounded in my practices of wellness every day. So I'll pause. No, no. And, and that's especially those three things, uh, the the peer element. Uh, we're starting the VA, of course, is recognizing that in, in peer support specialists. Uh, and essentially, uh, that's that's what I am in, in many ways is a, an uber peer, I guess, um, mm-hmm. you know, a, a combat veteran. I wasn't in mental health when I was in the military. This is something that I've done after I retired. Uh, and so I have the lived experience and then gained the clinical training uh, to be able to do that. But just to be able to have that that basic level um, it, and 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 it makes sense to me when you say that the uh, the mental health community says no 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 on suicide survivors, but could you imagine the oncologist saying no 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 you can't have a peer group of cancer survivors right. talking exactly. to other cancer survivors right and and it wouldn't you know of course not that would be an anathema that's that's the best way that that other cancer survivors who have been there done that right the best preacher is a former sinner um, right. and so that's the that peer to peer connection to say this is how I've made it through that pit. Um, and, and I know the way through, um, uh, when you're talking about pets, um, I, I've, I've had some conversations with Dr. Uh, Tedeschi from, uh, the Institute for Human Animal Connection. Mm. Uh, he and I worked on some, uh, some legislation here in Colorado a couple years back. Uh, I'm a huge proponent of, of, of that being supportive. You know, we talk about, I had, uh, uh, Jane Strong from the Equus Effect on the show as well. Um, and, and it is a benefit. Um, none of this can be a standalone, right? I mean, it's not right. just, I, I, I have my dog and then that's it, you know, or I have therapy and that's it, or I have my peers and that's it. I mean, it, this is a, um, a, a collective thing. Uh, and then, I, and then that the, the faith piece, the faith based piece, the spiritual piece, a lot of people, I mean, even in the clinical mental health field, they want to, well, I, you know, I'm very secular. I want to stay away from that. Well, if the, if that's what the client wants to talk about, then, then we have to meet with the client where they're at. And if that's the mm-hmm. thing that helps them, um, this, this goes, I think to something that, uh, that you and I had talked about just briefly before, and, and, and I know we're coming short on time, but, but you said that that when it comes to suicide prevention, it's not all about therapy. It doesn't mean that they just mm-hmm. have to get into therapy or, or here's some medication. So I'd like to touch on that for a bit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so if we think of suicide only as a mental health issue and, and the only change agents are mental health professionals, we're going to be very limited on our ability to save lives. Not because mental health professionals can't be effective, they absolutely can, but because those kind of interventions happen one-on-one, you know, in, in, in privacy and, and so on. Um, and so uh, we need to expand our, our ideas of what can be helpful in change. And so we'll broaden that out then to public health. All right. So if we broaden it out to public health now, workplaces can be change agents, faith communities, schools, uh, other types of community systems can now be part of the change agent process. And sometimes, you know, the thing that helps people become less despairing is they find meaningful work 
or, um, you know, they find a very healthy relationship that helps them not feel so alone or uh, a, a health crisis resolves or some other issue happens in their life that helps them move from hopelessness and despair to, oh, I see hope is coming. Um, when we broaden the lens even farther from that, so I, I'm actually in the, in the process right now of writing a blog that says, if you really want to help a veteran's mental health, hire them. Uh, because uh, you know, all all employers here these days is oh, veterans with PTSD and suicide, a PTSD and suicide, a PTSD and suicide, and they're terrified. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of them are like, mm -hmm. oh my gosh, what if that shows up on my workforce? I'm not handled to, and so they're you know, actively not hiring veterans when veterans make amazing employees. So, uh, and you know, veterans who are seeking work and can't find work find themselves in despairing situations. So, so uh, we just had this big meeting in DC with the DOD and the VA and a number of veterans groups and, oh, I don't know, 30, 40 very large employers throughout the U S who really do want to do the right thing and, and hire large numbers of veterans. And we kind of had this, you know, meet and greet piece where each of them were describing the fears that they had about the other. And it was really cathartic. So, um, so systems can help. And then, uh, and then when we brand, when we pull the lens back even farther and we can say, you know what, there's more at play here than just mental health and just uh, system failure. We actually have some social justice issues happening that are driving suicide despair. And, and at this, you know, in that, and through those lens, I'm talking about people who are experiencing, you know, high levels of marginalization and discrimination, um, our trans communities, our LGBTQ communities, our, our indigenous communities, um, you know, people of color and all of those intersecting identities, uh, you know, we can give them CBT and antidepressants all day. Uh, it's not going to change the fact that they're living in, in toxic communities um, that are, you know, are, are increasing despair uh, because of those injustices. And so when we when we pull the lens out to look at it through a social injustice lens, uh, the levers that we pull are different than the levers that we pull when we're really dealing with, you know, depression or, or trauma and anxiety response. That's where I was going. For example, I'm connected to uh, some indigenous communities in Oklahoma, for example. And, um, you know, again, we could we could approach the the fact that our our um, indigenous populations around the world have skyrocketing suicide rates, especially among our young males. You know, we could approach that by putting more treatment resources on there or funneling more antidepressants to those communities. Um, but what I'm seeing is most helpful. And again, I'm, I'm an outsider. I'm just witnessing this from the outside. I'm sure inside those communities, they could tell you in a lot richer way what's going on. But what I'm seeing that has been most helpful in those communities is a reclaiming of the cultural pieces that were lost during the historical trauma um, eras where they were moved off sacred land and, and, you know, put into these communities that were not about their historical culture and so forth. And so reclaiming some of the spiritual practices and traditional languages and traditional culture customs and so forth, that reclaiming of culture, um, has been more powerful in, in, in wellness and community than, than the mental health aspect. Uh, um, and so I'm just thinking like if we, if we pull up, pull our lens wider and really look at some of the drivers of despair, we'll come up with some new solutions, uh, some new um, action steps that would be very culturally relevant to address the social injustice issues. Now, I, I absolutely agree. I think when we, when we, when we started a little bit, there, there was a little bit of, what do you mean suicide doesn't mean mental health? Um, uh -huh. and, and I think that 
Um, yes, you're, you're accurate in that when I talk to other clinicians who are maybe not as familiar with veterans, they think, well, it, of course it's PTSD. I had a, a professional, a psychologist tell me, well, you've mm-hmm. had five deployments. Of course you have PTSD. Mm-hmm. So well, let's, mm-hmm. let's not, you know, and so there is that, but, but a lot of the things you're talking about, and I actually did a, a, a podcast series at the end of 2017, um, that it is more than that. And you're talking about employment that needs fulfillment, um, that it may not be, um, you know, PTSD, it may not be emotion and substance abuse. It's just that that verse, that veteran can't meet their needs. They can't get their needs met because exactly. they're not housed, they're not employed. And if you take care of that, then that's the suicidal, uh, uh despair moment. Or, or you mentioned relationships. Um, I, I identified family systems as a huge aspect of, um, the support. There was a study that came out the beginning of, uh, 2017, that showed that veterans have a greater chance of accessing and succeeding in treatment if they have a supportive family network. Um, exactly. And so a lot of these things that if, and, and I like how you said that pulling the lens back, pulling the lens back beyond just the, um, the idea of it's all PTSD and TBI and looking at everything comprehensively. Um, and it, it has to do with wellness and not just illness. And I think that's where we're coming from is when, and, and I guess what I'm hearing and correct me if I'm wrong is if suicide is about mental health, then mental health is about illness, which means suicide is about illness. And it's not. It's 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 about creating wellness in an individual. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you just reminded me that um, when we were doing those focus groups to translate the man therapy components into specific military and veterans uh, relevance, uh, you know, again, uh, these conversations are so important to have because you'll be surprised of what people tell you. And I was expecting, you know, post-traumatic stress to come to rise to the top and you know, our focus group members saying, yeah, 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 that's an issue. But that's an actually an issue that we expect. Like mm-hmm. we knew when we went to a daunting area, we knew we were probably going to see some awful things. And we did. And it, it bothers us. What we didn't expect, the thing that's really troubling us is the transition back yes. to our civilian life. We, we weren't expecting that this to be so, so difficult. And we're really struggling, um, struggling with not feeling like they're in step with others who didn't serve, uh, feeling like, um, you know, their ability to translate their warrior skills into other types of workforces or schools. Um, you know, people aren't appreciating what they're bringing to the table, uh, you know, and families not really understanding what they've been through. And, and so that was the part that was surprising and difficult to manage. And that was the part where they felt less supported than potentially their post-traumatic stress or TBI. So that was really interesting to me because, uh, you know, that's about supporting the people around the veteran right. and helping that, helping them do the right thing to help them in that transition. Just as one example of when we expand beyond mental health, what do we learn? We learn that other people and other systems and other approaches are needed. And even to the idea, what you were talking about before is the mental health community needs to be prepared. Um, mm. it, it, the mental health community needs to be prepared when veterans come in uh, and say, okay, yeah, about 25% of my personal clients that I see are struggling with PTSD, a greater number with substance abuse because of the culture in the military, but nearly 100% of them are struggling with purpose and meaning in their post-military life. That mm. That's the thing. And, and we, mm-hmm. and you know that mental health professionals, we have this thing called existential psychology that can help people mm-hmm. identify this kind of stuff. And so it's, you know, it's, it's less the PTSD and it's more Yalam and Frankel and Rollo May and things right. like that. Right, um, right, but, right. but we don't know that that's a tool that we need to apply or that we don't know that that's a lens we need to look through when we're dealing with veterans. We just assume it's PTSD. 
Um, and, and, and each of these things you're talking about, I mean, there's, that can lead someone into a suicidal crisis, the moral injury, the needs fulfillment, the family systems. These are all things that have to do with transition out of the military. Um, my, uh, a colleague of mine, Megan Mobbs, she's out of West Point, New York, but she did a great article um, uh, about transition stress, and uh, and I'll make sure that that's linked in the show notes. But for veterans, transition stress is as challenging, if not more, or, or is yes. more challenging than post-traumatic stress disorder and TBI. So it's it's great to hear that corroborated in, in the yeah. research that you've been doing. Yeah, yep. And, and again, I don't think the general public has a sense of that. They think it's all trauma or all TBI. Um, and, and if the general public knew, maybe they would do something different. You know, maybe they would approach veterans in a different way, a little bit more supportive way, or look at their practices and see how they're contributing to that transition distress. I'd, I'm really excited to see that research. I think that's uh, some really important work. So thanks for sharing that. Absolutely. Well, um, we're coming up on the end. And, and every time that I have a great conversation, they're all great conversations. I say we can talk about this all day. Right. Um, but uh, to sort of draw to a close, any last thoughts that you uh, you think you'd like to share, Sally? There, There is one last thing I'd like to say. And that is, um, I think we're at a point in time in the kind of the movement of suicide prevention, where what is most needed now are storytellers, storytellers mm. who, who are in a place in their recovery where they are, you know, fairly solid um, and proud of the fact that they've lived through something pretty intense. Um, when we have those storytellers who can say, yes, I went into that dark forest and and it was scary, but you know what? I uh, I reached out and I had these, you know, the guides and the, the, the elixirs and the magic and the training and the coping and, and the people, and I got to the other side of it. Um, and yeah, it's not been perfect. I've had trials and tribulations, but here is what I am today that I wasn't before I went through that dark time. Um, and I made it and you can make it. Those are the storytellers that uh, will do more to inspire hope um, and to let people know that they're not the only ones um, and that are really going to change the culture. So if you're in that space where you're feeling like, you know what, I, I, I want my story to help other people, you know, please reach out because there are a lot of uh, ways that we can help coach you on how to tell that story in the most safe and effective way to um, help you know large numbers of people uh, find their way through. Sounds a lot like something called post-traumatic growth. Um, right. <laughs> that is not widely. I mean, it, it is. And, and this is something, again, this is from, from a wellness perspective um, to be able to say, uh, look, um, the, the guns didn't go silent when I came back from combat. And I, the veteran, should not go silent either. And not even just the veteran, but the, the family member. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we, we don't talk about uh, family suicide, um, the veteran family member suicide, spouse and children. And, mm. and just it's, you know, and again, not to go back and get more of those numbers for the drumbeat of death. But but move, but but like you said, we can't take action unless we're first aware, um, mm -hmm. and then we can't change unless we take action. Right, right, exactly. So if they did want to reach out, if if listeners and and I anticipate that they will after hearing this great conversation, how can they find you? How can they reach out to you and uh, and and sort of make that connection? Yeah, let me give you two things. So one is uh, my website, SallySpencerThomas.com. Um, you can, you know, sign up for the newsletter is probably the best way to stay connected. And you'll hear about 
I have Twitter chats. I have my own podcast called Hope Illuminated. We do webinars, et cetera. So that's the best way to stay connected with all that. The other resource I want to share is uh, a nonprofit that I'm part of called United Suicide Survivors International. Um, so United Survivors is the short phrase and UniteSurvivors.org is the website. Um, and our whole purpose there is to do exactly what I just closed with, which is lifting up the voices of lived experience, whether that's uh, lost survivors, attempt survivors, people who've lived with thoughts and feelings, their friends and family, anybody who, who identifies as having a personal experience with suicide. How do we lift up your stories? How do we help you shape a redemptive story of coming through this difficult time? And then how do we leverage that story for systems and cultural change? If that excites you, please check us out because we're, we're, building, a, we're building an army uh, to fight against this and we're using lived experience or lived expertise as we like to talk, talk about it as uh, our main arsenal in that war. Now, I, I will make sure that all of those uh, are in the show notes, and uh, and I have a feeling that uh, this probably won't be the last time that I have you on the show to, to talk about what, where some of these things are moving in the future, because uh, as you said, we do need to move into action, uh, and I really appreciate you taking the lead on that. Well, I appreciate it very much, and thank you. Thank you. All right, take care. You're listening to Headspace and Timing on the Change Your POV Podcast Network. One of the things I really enjoyed about this episode was all the great practical information contained in it. Sally highlighted quite a few ways for us to move beyond just awareness and into action. First, she identified things that we can do ourselves, individually and within our relationships. Build resilience around the topic of suicide. Don't shy away from it, but be prepared for it when it happens. Develop a support network. She talks about those 3 a.m. friends, and it doesn't mean just telephonically. Just looked at my Facebook Messenger and I have nine friends online. Most of them are veterans. At least two are mental health professionals. Several I deployed with. Would you imagine that they would ignore me if I reached out to them at three in the morning? And finally, we need a plan for coping with the topic of suicide. If you're a veteran, care for one or work with one, then it's going to come up. Learn how to deal with it rather than shy away from it. Second, she talked about things done systematically. Have leaders step out front. Military leaders like Army Vice Chief of Staff Peter Chiarelli and Commandant of the Marine Corps James Amos, as well as leaders like General Don Bulldog and Secretary of Defense Robert Gates, have all stepped out publicly to talk about the need for greater awareness around service member and veteran mental health. That's great, but the squad leaders and platoon sergeants need to do so as well. She also talked about the need to screen for mental health needs in the same way that we screen for diabetes, health risks like smoking, and other public health concerns. And finally, for us, we, the mental health profession, we need to be prepared as well. 
This is something I've talked about before. We can't ask a veteran to come knocking on our door and then not be ready to open it when they do. Third, she talked about cultural changes that need to be made. Changing the message from one of hand-wringing despair to one of hope and possibility. Suicide prevention and intervention saves lives. It works, and I have seen firsthand how a veteran will turn their lives around after a significant suicidal crisis. Treatment works, connection works, action works. Another thing she referred to is peer support. We talked to Bennett Tanton back in episode 39 about peer support. We're having a conversation with Army veteran John Kilpatrick in a couple weeks about his organization, Veterans Recovery Resources, and the peer support symposium they recently hosted in Alabama. In the last episode of this four-part series, I'll be talking to the folks at Objective Zero, a mobile app and 501c3 nonprofit that connects veterans to prevention resources, including a peer network. These organizations, and many more, are taking a step forward in the peer support space, and more importantly, they're clinically informed and clinically supported. Another couple of critical safety factors that Sally mentioned were understanding that animal-assisted support is very beneficial and that faith and spirituality play a huge part as well. Speaking of resources, I'm doing the best I can on the Headspace and Timing website to bring you as much information as possible. If you want to keep up with us, you can now get the latest blog posts and podcasts delivered to your Facebook Messenger, which will make it easier for you to listen, learn, and share with those you care about. Head on over to VeteranMentalHealth.com, and in the middle of the image, you'll see a great big orange button. Click that and let me do the rest. It's that simple. So this is the second episode in a series of four that will be focusing on suicide prevention. This week, we talked about taking action. Next week, I'll be talking to Robert Stewart, Director of Veteran Programs for Given Hour, on how one organization is making a difference in suicide prevention and general mental health awareness. Here's a quick preview of what we'll hear next week. I don't want to give people an impression that, you know, just because of the Iraq and Afghanistan uh, conflicts, you know, the, the war on terrorism, that that's really kind of been the catalyst for, you know, the, the awareness about veteran suicide and service member suicide. Uh, you're, you're absolutely right when it comes to veteran suicides, even during peacetime, in the units that I served in, we lost soldiers to suicide during peacetime. It is always a shame to lose one person, but you know, we have to be aware of it's just not combat trauma. Make sure you subscribe on VeteranMentalHealth.com and ChangeYourPOV.com so you don't miss it. And until then, stay focused and be well. I'd like to thank the Change Your POV Podcast Network for hosting this show and highlighting the critical importance of veteran mental health. We want to hear from you. You can reach out to me via email at Dwayne at VeteranMentalHealth.com. You can find me at Twitter at The Counseling Vet or head on over to Facebook and look for the Change Your POV Squad. You can find the show notes for this episode and all the episodes by going to VeteranMentalHealth.com or ChangeYourPOV.com. Sign up for updates on either or both so you don't miss another episode. While you're at it, check out the other great shows on the Change Your POV Podcast Network. The show about remembering our military history and reviving our warrior spirit, changing hearts and minds, the show about outdoor activities that us veterans love so much, Neophyte in the Woods. The show that helps us get going at the beginning of the week, Motivation Monday. And Attack Fridays, the show that brings you actionable tips, tricks, and coachable knowledge to help you make the best of your transition. While you're checking out the other shows, drop us a review in iTunes or whatever podcast platform you're listening to. The reviews really help spread the word about what we're doing. If you're looking for the total package for all the information you need to live the life you want after leaving the military, you found it. If you know of a buddy who's looking for the same info, share it with them so they can find it too. I want to thank Doc Todd for his permission to use his track, Not Alone, from his amazing album, Combat Medicine. Doc Todd is somebody who's trying to bring veteran mental health out of the darkness and into the light, and you can get the album by going to therealdoctod.com. Check it out, because remember, veterans, you're not alone. Ever. 
The struggle is real, found a piece and lost a soul Eventually my drinking, it got out of control There in darkness I roam, struggling to find home See suddenly death didn't feel so alone 22 a day, destination unknown It could have been avoided if you picked up the phone But now you're gone, so I guess all we get is the tone Nothing but bone weeds, overgrown, pushing up stones I've triumphed over enemies, co-creating enemies Broke out facilities that tried to put an end to me R.I.P. I'd rather grind in tranquility Authentic Tennessee, embrace my ability Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.